This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and center. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. It feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioral challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is still off today. Eddie Vandervolk uh, joins me for the hour. It's just past about 5 p.m. in the city of London. Let me get you caught up on some stuff because there's been a lot of stuff happening in this market. European equities closed pretty heavy. The DAX off by eight-tenths of 1%. European stocks off by eight-tenths of 1%. What didn't close lower was power and energy prices, coal, uh, power prices in France, gas prices really surging as we're dealing with less supply uh, from Russia. There's also an agreement on reducing demand, but there's some question marks as to if that's going to work. You also have a pretty terrible euro. Uh, euro Swissy at a record low now. One hedge fund seems 80 euro dollar. A huge, huge call. Things are looking pretty grim. We got a debate. We get earnings. UBS, not so great. Unilever, raising prices. LVMH, though, crushes it. Clearly, Eddie has been buying all those expensive bags and alcohol. Nice <laughs> job, Eddie. There's a lot to go through. There's a lot in these markets at the moment. It's a very exciting, you know, we, I think it's one of the most exciting run-ups to a Fed decision that we've had for quite some time. The market, the market's in a, in a difficult position here because there's a lot here to react to. And yet, mm-hmm. traditionally, you know, you sit back and wait a little bit ahead of the Fed. But I don't think we can do that this time around. And I, see, I think we are seeing that today. People are having to pre-price, you know, some of their expectations because because there's just too much happening to just say, okay, we're going to sit sit back and wait for the for the Fed rate hike. No, you really can't. And we got disappointing data here in the U.S. That consumer confidence number was really weak. Inflation expectations rolled over a bit, but they're still quite high at seven percent. New home sales, that number uh, was utterly terrible. And the Walmart warning was also really scary. Then on the flip side, you have 3M, GE, they're doing pretty well. So it's really a have and have nots. But the focus, Eddie, on both sides of the Atlantic does seem to be the consumer with those record high prices. Yeah, and the consumer in Europe in particular getting squeezed. I mean, the consumer everywhere. Energy prices is, is, is squeezing the consumer, right? I mean, whether we're talking about gasoline prices as a result of, uh, you know, shortages of, of, of refining capacity, or you're talking about the squeeze in Europe specifically, where you're seeing, you know, energy prices double and triple and quadruple over the summer months even and it 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 really just takes takes money away from the consumer at yeah. a time when you know they're already facing the the the, the squeeze from central bankers yeah. so uh, it's a, it's a very difficult situation i think i think though that there's a lot of bad news being priced into markets mm-hmm. at the moment i i said this to you last time I remain a little bit optimistic because I think there is so much bad news in these markets that unless the worst case scenario of a complete Russian shut off of gas supplies comes to be, you know is, is is borne out, then I then I then I think mm-hmm. there's some upside to be had. So he's been saying. So he's been saying. So a lot to get through in the next hour. A lot of juicy things to talk about. Uh, in the meantime, let's get some of your other top stories now with Charlie Pellet. I thank you very much. Got to begin with this headline from the Bloomberg Professional Service from the Press Association. London underground workers will strike August 19th in a row over jobs and pensions. This, according to the RMT Union, we have a date now. That report from 
Tehran, the press association saying underground workers will strike August 19th. Foreign Secretary Liz Truss has pledged to cut uh, to crack down on Chinese-owned companies such as social media giant TikTok as she traded blows with Rishi Sunak in their first head-to-head debate of the race to succeed Boris Johnson as UK Prime Minister. Her remarks on uh, TikTok builds on Sunday's back and forth between the two contenders on how to deal with China, with both politicians criticizing each other for their past approaches. The Bulgarian Defense Ministry says the UK, the US, and Bulgaria will be holding a joint exercise featuring as many as 450 troops and 90 pieces of military equipment. And Russia will opt out of the International Space Station after 2024 to focus on building its own orbiting outpost. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. Charlie Pellet, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. So we were just talking about uh, the gas shortage and the energy crisis over in Europe. Uh, The news today is that energy ministers from the bloc's 27 member states agreed in a 15% cut in gas consumption through the winter. It's voluntary, but there are some triggers that make it then mandatory. If five countries say that they're in a critical situation or if Russian gas flows goes directly to zero. Eddie, what were your thoughts on this? Look, I think I think it's this is obviously a sign that it is serious. But I think it's a good sign that the energy ministers are taking it seriously, right? Yeah. I think what this shows us, I think if this happened last winter when nobody was prepared for it, right? If 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 if, if we saw Russia cut gas supplies to, you know, 10% or 20% or zero, then I think I think that would have been catastrophic because nobody would have had time to prepare. But I think there was a whole summer in which people have put contingencies in place. um, And we talked about uh, China and other places increasing their demand for uh, coal and other sources of energy. I think all of these things, you know, clearly it's not good news if, if, if Europe cannot get natural gas from Russia during the, you know, and particularly if it's a bad winter and all of that. But I think... A lot is being done. A lot of contingencies are being put into place. Mm -hmm. And unless there is a real worst case scenario in Europe where not only is the the gas cut off, but, but industry has to grind to a halt in order to keep houses warm then I think a lot of the bad news is already in the market. So, you know, I, I'd, I'd, I'd still ignore the Armageddon scenario here. So I'm slowly, because I'm a little slow, coming around to this point of view. A couple reasons. One, we got some regasification projects. They're called FSRUs. They're floating storage and regasification units. They have some, reached some final investment decisions, which means they can start going ahead and, and building them out. That's starting to happen. Is it a, a solution tomorrow? No, but it's happening now, and that's something. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition, China has not been buying as much LNG as normal, so that frees up flows to go to Europe. Right. Um, and how much more and in order for Putin to keep leverage, he needs to actually still pump gas. So if they prepare yeah. for zero and you don't get zero, that feels like gravy. Now, there are lots of what if ands or buts to that. I'm just helping to support your relative optimism. Yeah, no. And, and, and I understand. I, you know, I agree with all of that. I think I think that the, the idea that that Putin can't go to zero because he wants to be seen as a reliable partner. No, no, no. I don't to, agree. He, I don't agree with that. Yeah, I'm saying in no. order to have leverage, you have to have something yeah. to have leverage. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But I think I think his long term leverage 
He's mm-hmm. squandered, right? I think I think yes. nobody nobody sees him as a reliable supplier of gas anymore. So whether or not you know he shuts off the gas this winter, I think it's it, it, it's become kind of irrelevant because we are assuming that it, that that Russia is not a a a, a reliable partner anymore, yes. and therefore all contingencies have to be all 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 other um, contingencies have to be brought to life. You know, we've got to we've got to bring our uh, ESG our green uh, renewable projects on stream as quickly as possible. Yes. China will 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 use uh, coal as much as possible because not to, to to help Europe, but they know if they're going to have to compete with Europe for that expensive LNG during the winter, exactly. they're going to have to pay more. So everybody's acting in their self-interest here. But well, I think it, it it plays out fairly well for Europe. I, I think, look, Europe will struggle with no, with no Russian gas over the winter. It, they will struggle, but right, we're and, assuming they will anyway. And this goes to your point of like the leverage was really last year because right, that's right. when it really would, would have hurt. And then to your point about coal, it's like everyone cares about energy security now. Like if, if, if that eventually comes to be green, that's awesome, but right. that's not an, a necessary point at this moment. I think the question then becomes – how high do prices go, and then where does that hurt? Because obviously, not those buying LVMH bags, but for everybody else, those power prices are going to bite a lot. And then do you trade down? Do you stop doing discretionary things? Do you stop doing services? And that's kind of where we get into the more the economic uh, and the corporate story, which has really been pervading the U.S. as well as Europe today. Um, coming up, though, we're going to take a teeny break from that and talk about U.K. politics, which I know Eddie is super pumped about. We have another debate today between Truss and Sunak. We had one yesterday. Let's get the takeaway. I'm hearing it's Liz Truss's race to lose. We'll break it down. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. We need to get a grip of inflation. And if we don't do that now, it's going to cost all of you and everybody watching at home far more in the long run. Everybody thinks that putting up taxes at this moment is going to hurt the economy. You can't put up taxes and get growth. If we follow Rishi's plans, can we, we are can headed Sophie, for can a we recession. Really get, your own economic advisor has said that that would lead to mortgage rates, interest rates going up to 7%. Can you imagine what that's going to do for everyone here and everyone watching? That's thousands of pounds on their mortgage bill. It's going to tip millions of people into misery. This okay. chancellor has raised taxes to the highest rate for 70 years. Right, the mistake that we will make is at a time when inflation is already high. Everyone's already feeling it in their bills. Interest rates are already on the rise. So into that situation, does anyone think that the sensible thing to do is go on a massive borrowing spree worth tens of billions of pounds and fuel inflation even further? That was Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak in the first debate, a one-on-one debate last night. They get another one today. Uh, Managing Editor for the European Economy and Government, uh, Ben Sills, uh, joins us now. Hey, Ben, is it Liz Truss's race to lose still? I think it is. Um, The polls show that she's got a really massive advantage um, with the Tory party members who um, who will ultimately decide this race uh, when they cast their ballots over the next six weeks or so. Rishi Sunak um, is probably the favourite with investors, um, but he needs to really land a punch uh, on her in these TV debates if he's going to turn around that deficit. And uh, last night he didn't manage to do it. Ben, but the Conservative Party likes nothing more than winning elections, right? And even the members, <laughs> this is this is just, this is what they are really, really good at. And 
the 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 electorate as a whole seems to like Sunak more than than Truss. Is is this something that will weigh into 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 the decision making as we go into the final stretch? It's definitely a factor. I think the, the the thing to bear in mind here is that the Conservative Party has been in power now for 12 years. This is about to be their fourth consecutive prime minister. And I get the feeling that maybe the members have just got a little bit complacent. They certainly couldn't imagine Jeremy Corbyn being British Prime Minister. Um, and I don't think they, ne- they, they necessarily take Keir Starmer very seriously either. So I think that there's, a, there's, a, there's possibly a danger here for the Tory party that they'll indulge themselves with the candidate that, that kind of presses their buttons um, rather than the one that's going to come over best with the, with the wider electorate. But even still... I- I mean, Rishi Sunak is proposing tightening the fiscal purse strings at a time when no other country is doing that. And the central bank is going to raise rates. Energy prices are sky high and inflation is really high. Um, How is that going to go over well at all with anybody? Well, Sunak Sunak is basically um, working from the playbook that he drew up. Um, when he was Chancellor under Boris Johnson. Um, the plan there is to tighten the belt now, as you, uh, uh, which while we still have the election probably two years out, so that, that, so that you can, you can um, plan tax cuts, which he's already got planned um, in the run-up to the next election, so you can give voters um, a sweetener at that point, but also claim that you've, you've kind of done the hard work just to, to, to clean up the, the public finances at the same time. Are the debates really going to sway anybody? Do you think? Do you think this is this is something that the that the the party favourites, uh, the the party uh, faithful watch very closely? Um, I think it's 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 a general rule of um, political debates that they that they on average create more uh, more heat than light. Um, uh, usually they don't change very much for all of the attention that's focused on for that's focused on them. However, sometimes they do, um, and um, that's really the um, the bet that Sunak's got to make. He's he's mm-hmm. he's strategy is that you know trust under pressure will show that she doesn't have the policy chops to do this job properly and that's what he's trying to expose hey ben thank you so much really appreciate it ben sills on uk politics there um coming up we're going to go back to the consumer lvmh just crushing it we'll talk about what is the good and the bad for people spending this is bloomberg this is the cable with guy johnson and alex Steele on bloomberg radio Good evening, listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele. Eddie Vandervault is in for Guy Johnson uh, over in the UK. So a really interesting mix of retail numbers. So yes, we all know Walmart had to cut its profit forecast. We're still buying stuff, but we're trading down and we're buying less things like apparel. That was one part of the story. We also have Unilever successfully able to pass on price increases, people still buying Mm. their stuff, but they had to pay up in terms of advertising and their costs are getting hurt. And then you have the shining star. Then you have the company that clearly feels no pain, and that's LVMH. Sales jump. Huge demand for luxury bags and really expensive alcohol. Um, You have fashion and leather goods had 19% organic sales. I don't know. 
I think Walmart would kill for something like that. Um, let's get more on it. Andrea Felstead uh, from Bloomberg Opinion joins us now. Andrea, there's so much to talk to, but I want to start with LVMH. How did they do this well? <laughs> um, they did very well um, because uh, people in uh, the U.S. and Europe are still buying um, luxury goods. I mean, they have been impacted by China. You mentioned the, the 19% increase in fashion and leather goods. Uh, organic sales, that was actually down from 30% in the first quarter. Still very good, but it was a slowdown, and that's due to the disruption in China. Andrea, I, I, can I put my theory to you? I think, right, that what's happening here is that, yes, people are, people are feeling a pay squeeze, but then suddenly they get a pay hike, right? They get a 8% or a 10% or a 5% pay hike. What do you do when you get a 5% pay hike? You go out and splurge some money, right? You, it's, it's called the wealth effect. Even though in, non, in, in, in real terms, your earnings are going down, for a brief moment, you feel like you're rich, and then you go out and you, you splash some cash. That's what's happening, isn't it? I'm not sure that is exactly what is happening this time round. I think that's exactly what happened when people got stimulus checks. Because what we've seen is uh, retailers talking about the comparison with 2021 when people got stimulus checks and they went and spent them on a bag or a pair of sneakers. Now, I think uh, consumers are more nervous this time round, and I think they're a little bit more nervous about splashing out on those items. Um, What's particularly notable is Burberry said a couple of weeks ago that uh, the more affordable luxury items, such as sneakers, were a little bit weaker. So you could see some of those marginal consumers under pressure. The other thing we've seen is the bubble in the watch market has burst, and that Mm. was very much the case of uh, consumers, particularly men, last year, having their crypto gains, having their stock market gains, and they were going out and buying a Rolex particularly. And that has also slowed. So, yes, uh, you know, we are still seeing very strong demand from luxury. I don't think it is equally spread. So he, he, here's another theory, potentially. Also, I should point out, Eddie, we were all super sad in 2021. So there was also like, we need to go buy the things that are shiny. Um, <laughs> the other thing it feels like, if you take a look at, say, what Unilever and Walmart and then LVMH, and I know that they're so different, but what, what, what it feels like is, if you got a lot of money, you're fine. You're going to keep buying the things. If you don't have a lot of money, even if you're getting... A raise, you're going to be really price competitive in what you're going to buy, or you're going to want to buy exactly what you need, like Hellman's mayonnaise or something. Like you need the exact right product, and you're not going to be spending on frivolous like workout clothes from Walmart. I, I think that's right. I, I I think that the wealthy are holding up better, but they are not immune. Luxury does tend to correlate with stock markets. And obviously, we've seen very choppy stock markets this year. We've seen those big crypto uh, reductions. And I think we need to be on watch that that will have an impact in the second half of the year. It's also worth remembering that this time last year was when demand in the U.S. really started to build. It wasn't China that Mm. carried the luxury market last year. It was the U.S. And it was this time last year that it all started to happen. So from now on, all the luxury groups are up against much tougher comparisons in the second Mm. half. 
Andrea, but 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 Walmart then, if people are if people are saving, people are so you know a penny pinching and 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 shouldn't they be going to Walmart and spending at your sort of discount retailers that, that you know is isn't isn't this telling us a slightly different story? They are indeed. They are indeed going to um, these these retailers, and and I think I I don't agree that it is anybody who's who's um, exposed to the low-end consumer that is at risk. I think the middle market is more at risk because mm-hmm. you've got, as LVMH has shown, the top end still spending for now, but they're still spending. You've got the bottom end. Um, Walmart actually said, Walmart actually revised up its US same-store sales slightly um, right. because consumers are attracted to its low prices. I think the real danger zone is that middle market, and we haven't really seen that come into play yet. So then in the meantime, is it all going to be about how good these individual retailers are at inventory management? Like, is that more of my takeaway from Walmart yet again? Yes, it's going to be, um, it's definitely going to be inventory management, but it's also going to, uh, you know, their position in the market and how discretionary they are, because, you know, there are going to be things that are easier to cut back on. One of the things we've seen people cut back on is those leisure clothes. You mentioned the things they um, they bought in the pandemic. Um, so I think I think it's inventory management. I think it's also are you in that squeezed middle? That's going to be I think where the pain will come. And if if so, we haven't got a lot of time left. But but so people people are being squeezed at the moment. But uh, you know is 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 the is the consumer completely rolling over? And and big, or, or do you think do you think there's still hope here? Um, I think the next um, six months will be very difficult. Um, we've got two things going on. We've still got a bit of reopening going on, but we have got this impact on incomes, and and I think the next six months will be um, will be very difficult for all these companies. Mm-hmm. Holiday is going to be quite tricky. Okay, on that up note, um, <laughs> you guys can still buy me my Dom Perignon, though. Like, that feels okay. Um, Andrea, thanks a lot. Andrea Felstead of Bloomberg Opinion joining us there. Coming up, we're going to go on earnings yet again and look deeper into UBS, plus what it means for investment banking bonuses. It might not be that good. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele. Eddie Vanderbilt is in for Guy Johnson uh, over in the UK. Let's get you updated on what's happening in U.S. markets. So stocks trading pretty heavy. Remember, we have uh, Microsoft and Google coming out after the closing bell here in the U.S. Within the S&P, Walmart's really taking it on the chin off by almost 8 percentage points after having to lower its profit forecast. On the upside, you got a 3M and General Electric. Both of those reporting some solid numbers. Um, 3M is looking at uh, spinning off its healthcare unit, uh, and GE um, had some nice positive cash flow. So that's sort of helping those stocks. One thing to point out is what's happening in the FX market. It's definitely a bid to safety. You got stronger dollar, stronger yen, stronger Swissy, but it's also a story of like really intense euro weakness here. You're looking at euro dollar 101 is where we sit a record low against the Swissy. I mean, it's it's looking pretty bad. Uh, I gotta be honest, Eddie. <laughs> no, absolutely. But I think that long that that weaker euro, you know, I, I think I think it's uh, it 
it's probably a, a good thing for the for, for, for the Eurozone as a whole. It's not going to be good on the inflation front. It's not going to help them bring down energy prices, but it is going to it is going to help on exports, which, you know, Europe needs growth is what mm-hmm. Europe needs more than anything else. And I think that that, you know, a weaker currency is always, always a positive on that front. Yeah. Um, but you know, Europe Europe definitely has problems, and it's and, and it's going to have to get through them this winter. But you know, I I do think a lot of a lot of bad news are in the price. So you've said. So he I, said. I you just need the countries to buy the things from Europe. You need China to get in there. Um. Okay. So that's a snapshot of some of the headlines here. Let's get some over your top stories with Charlie Pellet. Hi. Thank you very much, Alex. Still, here's what's going on. The RAC Motoring Organization says the UK's supermarkets are failing to fully pass on cuts in the wholesale price of road fuels to drivers. RAC says while the average price of petrol sold by supermarkets has edged lower, the drop a drop should be far larger given the sharp fall in the wholesale cost of fuel. RAC data show the average price for the road fuel across the UK should be around 174 pence a litre, with diesel at 189p. That compares with a UK average retail price of 185.9 AP for petrol and 195p for diesel. A survey by the Confederation of British Industry finds UK retail sales continue to fall on an annual basis this month and shops anticipate a more severe slump in August. A third of firms questioned said sales volumes were lower than the same month last year with a little more than a quarter reporting an improvement. London Heathrow Airport says airlines need to hire more ground staff and be more aggressive about it to help overcome persistent travel disruptions, warning that a cap on flights to ease the chaos might have to stay in place for at least another year. CEO John Holland Kay says this is not going to be a quick fix, and it's absolutely possible that we could have another summer with a cap still in place. Heathrow introduced a limit of 100,000 daily departing passengers on July 12th and said at the time that the measure would stay in place for two months. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. Charlie Pellet, thanks so much. Eddie, I really hope the guy doesn't know about that Heathrow headline, and we'll talk more about that in a second, but uh, he's <laughs> going to be really mad about that. Yeah, absolutely. And nobody wants to travel at the moment out of Europe. It just Everybody that I talk to just talks about queues at airports, queues at uh, Dover, everywhere. It's 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 just it, it's off-putting to book a holiday at this moment in time. It's such a, a nice way of saying that, uh, off-putting. Um What was also off-putting was UBS. I don't know if that transition worked, but let's go with it. So UBS stock uh, closed down about 10%. Um, Here are some of the headlines. The bank reported a 14% decline in second quarter revenue at the investment bank and then a 57% plunge in its mergers and underwriting business. Um, Public listings, deals really dried up. The trading part of their business did well, but nowhere near the rock star numbers that the U.S. banks did. Um, Manus Cranny uh, caught up with CEO uh, Ralph Hammers and sort of talked through some of the issues facing the bank. So, indeed, it was a, a, a quarter with different challenges. Uh, nevertheless, we continued to focus on executing our strategy and making sure that we could grow the ecosystem for investing there. Uh, where we saw flow, flows through in, uh, in, in private markets at 3.9 billion, uh, SMAs 4 billion as well, where we released two new uh, digital applications as well. Uh, on the other side, and that's where this, this remark comes from, we saw on one side private clients, given all the uncertainties, sidelining their money. 
uh, waiting for things to clear up. Whereas on the institutional side, we saw a lot of activity, and that's what you see in our investment banking uh, uh, results as well. So all of this uh, basically delivered a, a flat revenue line, reported uh, revenue line, a cost down by 1% versus mm -hmm. last year, and a profit before tax of 2.6 billion. I look at the transactions and the lending in the wealth management business. I would say that looks quite grim. Transactions down 17%, lending uh, down 12%. Do you think we're still in fear mode on the client side? So if you look at the, uh, at the wealth management business, uh, you see a couple of elements here uh, impacting our revenues. So on one side, you see that just the level of the market generates less recurring uh, fees. Mm -hmm. The uh, sidelining, so the, the wait and see pattern of our clients basically gives pressure on the transaction revenues. On the other side, because of the rate environment, we saw interest income increasing by 24%. And as a consequence of that, almost compensating for the pressure on the, on the fee side. Uh, so with that, still a, a, a good quarter. The underlying effects, though, is, is, is different. So on the, uh, in the net new free generating assets, uh, uh, we saw still money coming in, 400 million. Uh, and you saw actually a very That's diverse very, picture. very small. Where, where did that small, money come from? It's small and it's a very diverse picture. So we see outflows in the U.S. generally driven uh, by tax payments, mm -hmm. uh, which were higher than, uh, than we expected. But we saw actually 3.3 billion coming in in Asia Pacific, where we actually now see after three quarters of lower transaction revenues, you see that clients are turning to mandates and they're really turning now to us to get their advice on what investments to do. And that's where the 3.3 billion inflow on Asia Pacific comes in. But on the Asia, and the last time we caught up, you said, Manus, it's deleveraging. Again, this is a fourth quarter in a row of deleveraging in Asia. Any sign of that bottoming out? Um, at this moment, no. I don't see it bottoming out. Um, uh, so we, we, we just report uh, what we see. Uh, mm -hmm. we, uh, depending on the level of the market, we see there is more appetite or less appetite. Um, I don't expect too much further deleveraging, um, but it really depends on where markets are going. On the other side, we see in the U.S., uh, leverage is still going up. We were successful in the mortgage business. We're successful in the security-based lending business as well, supporting there. So overall, we still saw almost $1 billion of net new loans in, uh, in the wealth business. Since you've sat into the chair as CEO, the headwinds in Asia and China just keep smacking you. Are you still full bull on China and Asia as a strategy? Well, you can't, you, 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 you can't turn away from Asia if you just look at the underlying trends there and, uh, and at the future. So the demographics speak for Asia. The demographics speak for China. Um, clearly, there is a couple of unclarities there. And mm -hmm. I do expect that towards the end of the third quarter and in the fourth quarter, that more optimism and positivism may come back. That was Ralph Hammer, CEO of UBS with Manus Cranny. And Eddie, if they struggle, who's not getting their bonus? Who's getting reduced bonuses? They're not buying their Dom Perignon. But look how cheap those bank shares are. Seven True story. PEs. Yeah, no, it's it's 100% true. They are super, super cheap. And there was a great article in Bloomberg Opinion that talked about how you just rethink of what this company is. It's not trying to be... JP Morgan is trying to be something different, so you have to value it accordingly. Anyway, it's a good read. Uh, looking at that, shares um, closed down by about 9.4%. Are coming up more on the horrible airport thing. <laughs> this is Bloomberg.
This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. You're listening to Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele here in New York. Eddie Vandervault is over in the UK in uh, for Guy Johnson. Tell me if you heard this one before. Heathrow is going to limit its 100,000 daily departing passengers for the next 12 to 18 months, potentially, because all the staffing problems have not been solved. In the meantime, yeah, sure, it's on Heathrow, but it's also a lot of shade being thrown at the airlines in particular, and they're not doing enough on their part. Um, Here to break it down, Sid Phillips joining us uh, from Bloomberg. Sid, what was behind the CEO of Heathrow, John Holland Kay, saying this? So there's been a lot of pressure on Heathrow lately because Heathrow is one of the latest airports that limited capacity. And so there's been a lot of pressure on the Heathrow CEO from the airline saying that uh, essentially Heathrow's capacity limits was covering their summer plans. And especially when summer is crucially important after virtually no travel for two years. And so Heathrow sort of hit back saying that the cap is because of not just their issues, but also the issues that the airlines have. Uh, so, but is the airlines is the airlines the airlines are clearly struggling with staffing and with uh, with with paying for, for 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 staff? Is is it purely just a case of they need to pay people more to come in and 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 you know work? Uh, it, it's a bit of both. It's also a question of having to get security clearances because not just anybody can rock up and sort of start working at the airport. So you need to get security clearances, you need to sort of get various sort of identifications and sort of background checks. And all of that just takes time. So essentially, it's a question of not staffing up in time. And I don't think throwing money can fix the immediacy of the problem. It could sort of fix it slightly longer term, but we're already into peak summer. So it's a bit too late to be trying to pay more and hire more people at the moment. So what does fix this situation? Because as we saw with EasyJet, not being able to run full steam, like they're losing money. They have to write down the stuff. Um, It's not good for earnings. Like what would it take? So it would take a sort of building up now for next summer because, I mean, remember, there's also this massive variability because of the fact that will, will there be a recession? Will there not be a recession? What does the higher cost of living and inflation mean for ticket sales. And in that whole uncertainty, you also have to gear up for next summer now so that you have your staffing in place when demand comes, you have so you can serve that demand. Okay. We've but the the, the companies, you know, as as is this is this an issue for them because of Brexit? Is it an issue for them because of COVID? Is it an issue because they underestimated demand for flights? What is it that's 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 just brought them, you know, so much problems all at the same time? So it's actually all of the above. And it started off with COVID because at the height of the pandemic, a lot of airlines, airports, ground handling firms all cut staff back because of the fact that there was no travel. Then you have Brexit that's chosen that in the whole mix, and essentially you're not able to get workers from the continent into work into the mm. airlines and airports and aviation industry. And then you have sort of uh, you have rising inflation that's having a massive impact on costs, and essentially then you also have the rapid turnaround in travel. I mean, everybody remember was talking about a slow ramp back up to travel demand. And then so this summer just came back roaring and airlines weren't prepared. Uh, who's the worst 
Like, it's not just Heathrow. I know the Brexit thing is in particular, but is there other airports that are just, like, also in really bad shape right now? Absolutely. I mean, so Heathrow threw shade at Shaipol Airport in Amsterdam mm. and said that we're at least better than Shaipol because they've limited capacity further. And and we also have Gatwick Airport <laughs> in uh, London's second largest airport, but it's also limited number of flights. And so it's not really just Heathrow, but Heathrow does get the most attention because of the fact that they are... They were the biggest airport in Europe before Mm -hmm. the pandemic. Man, nightmare. Nightmare. All right, Sid, thanks a lot. Sid Phillip of Bloomberg News, who covers all things travel. Um, All right, coming up next, we're going to shift our focus to the U.S. we got big tech earnings coming out after the closing bell. We're looking for Microsoft. We're looking for Google. But we also have Amazon and Apple and Meta all coming up over the next few days. We're going to break it all down and get your trade as we're looking at the NASDAQ 100 right around the lows of the session. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Eddie Vanderbilt is in for Guy Johnson over in London. I um, just want to update you on some headlines from LVMH's call. They did have a stellar quarter, uh, 19% organic revenue for their leather goods department. The CFO talking about China, though, saying that they're kind of in a wait-and-see mode in terms of Chinese demand, and that they do see progressive normalization for China. LVMH gets a lot of its revenue from China, and of course China has that zero-tolerance lockdown COVID policy, which has been ex- uh, affecting sales there. Um, and they do also say that Tiffany had a very good first half. Um, That was helped by the U.S. Um, All right, let's get to what to expect after the bell here in the United States, and that is big tech earnings. you got Microsoft. you got Google. Uh, Joining Eddie and I to discuss is Ed Ludlow. He joins us from San Francisco. First off, Ed, nice haircut I noticed this morning on TV. Nice, nice the size. (laughs) Finally, somebody notices. Thank you. First thing I noticed. Um, Okay, aside from your haircut, Microsoft, Google, uh, what are you looking for? Yeah, I think two very different companies. I think what's so astonishing about Microsoft is the consensus is for top-line growth of 14%, 1-4%, which is nothing to be sniffed at in corporate America. And yet, that would be the lowest growth in two years. And, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on Microsoft with a, with a recession pending because, you know, one of the big themes of the entire week is... The, the, the ability of these companies to kind of endure and resist the effects of recession. And Microsoft's kind of top of that pile. You know, the, the cloud-based office suite of software, cloud itself, the expectation is that even in a recession, we'll still continue to see sales growth above 10%. But again, seems weird said out loud that even that kind of nice double-digit growth is still the lowest growth it's seen in two years. And the street will be making sure they at least, bare minimum, hit that. Ed, so, so, so Microsoft is the one that, that, that potentially tells us the least about the health of the, of, the, yeah. of, the, of the consumer, right? But I'm a macro guy. I'm not that interested in the individual companies. Which, which one do I need to look at to tell me really, you know, yeah. how, how is the consumer doing? That, that, that is true. I would point out as well that, you know, Microsoft in the background, as Bloomberg's reported, is, hire, is freezing hiring. And, you know, we'll, we will look to their outlook. But you know, certainly from Alphabet, the parent company of Google, you have the advertising component, right? Mm. How ad spending is playing out on the YouTube platform in particular, but also their kind of ginormous ad placement business through Google search. Um, and then Amazon, you know, I think for the markets that we see 
during what day is it tuesday tuesday session today you know walmart has put us on high alert for amazon because you know Mm -hmm. the expectation from at least some of the street is that there will be bleed through from what we saw in walmart through to amazon in other words you know a a slowdown on discretionary spending and a shift to essential items but there is also some disagreement about how amazon's insulated from that as well So, in terms of the ad sales uh, for Google, for example, and YouTube, so part of the idea is that um, Apple changed the privacy function. So, therefore, they couldn't, therefore, the Facebook app or the Google app or whatever, YouTube is less appealing to advertisers. Now, the idea is that that's already been felt, right? Like, is that headwind to the side now? Yeah, I think there's something really interesting about Google, which is that there's basically two ad models, right? One is the social media side of advertising, ads that are placed on the YouTube platform. The one that is, you know, we're going to pay probably closer attention to is spending on search ads, because no matter how the economy is, I don't know about you guys, but, you know, folks continue to use Google every day of the week. And, you know, you may not be Googling, where am I going on my five-star luxury resort this year? You might be Googling how to save money at home, how to shop more economically. And so, you know, I think the street's looking for signs that the search ads business is going to be more resilient than the social media business. And also, therefore, that it's a better candidate to place your money with versus the likes of a meta parent company of Facebook or Snap or something to that effect. But if I if I'm googling if I'm googling what am I going to do or you know where can I go on my next holiday my my search terms are worth more money to Google than if I'm googling you know uh, what's on TV tonight. Yeah, that's true. But I think in in you know one thing we've learned from the early part of earnings season is that consumer sentiment is equally aligned with the advertising market sentiment, right? Mm-hmm. That, you know, to quote Elon Musk, uh, you know, consumers are all over the map at the moment and they are sort of manic depressive. And I think we see signs of that from the ad-based model companies, Snap, Twitter, etc. that if there isn't confidence in the consumer, then you do see advertisers pulling back. And that particularly, you know, with you guys in Europe, continues to be the case as well. There's still a lot of concern about the ongoing war in Ukraine and how the ad market is softened up, particularly among the European consumer as well. So it's a, it's a general reading of sentiment. And that's kind of why I answer that way. It goes back to your earlier question. That's why we're so focused, mm-hmm. not just on Amazon, but on Alphabet as well, because we get that ad market take. What are you hearing in terms of what's already priced in? Like both stocks down today, the Nasdaq's been trying to find a bottom. That was kind of the question of the day that we had a yes. couple of days ago. But that question seems irrelevant at this point. What's baked in? Yeah, you know, last week I think the Nasdaq was up for three straight days, right? And it was our best run since early May, and things were going really well. And then those snap numbers hit, and and the market kind of pivoted on a dime, and and things changed very much. I think what's interesting, we haven't even spoken about Apple, which comes later in the mm-hmm. week, and we know about the concern with Amazon now because of Walmart. We've reported at Bloomberg that Microsoft and Apple are freezing hiring, which in Apple's based on Apple's track record, is a pretty conservative move for a company that has such a a bloated balance sheet, has a lot of cash on hand. So it's interesting because the outlook for Apple will really give us a a world lens, right? Not just in the North American consumer, but the Chinese consumer as well. Remember, the other piece of reporting of the last week is that Apple is going to do an unusual thing and offer discounts, heavy discounts in China for one day starting on Friday. That's being kind of seen negatively as, uh uh-oh, 
what is it going to take for Apple to drive sales in that country? Is China now on the list for for a recession risk as well? Yeah. Hey, Ed, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Uh, one of the hardest working people here. Well, except for me and Eddie, obviously. <laughs> uh, Ed, thanks a lot. Good luck tomorrow. It'll be fun to get your perspective. Ed Ludlow joining us uh, from San Francisco. All right, Eddie, that's what I'm looking at. What to expect after the bell from tech. What's on your radar? Yeah, you know what? I think I think Europe's energy crisis remains the big one for me. I think uh, at some point we're going to see those natural gas prices starting to cave unless we see this Armageddon scenario. And I think, you know, I, I also think that uh, consumer spending is going to start coming back. Um, that's what I'm hoping for in Europe. That is like so optimistic. I love this. I love this new side to you, Eddie. Um, hey, thanks for joining me for the hour. This was a lot of fun. I truly, truly enjoyed talking to you. I hope you guys enjoyed the show as much as I did. I will be back here tomorrow with you guys. Have a great Tuesday. You've been listening to the cable. This is Bloomberg. <laughs>